should our attitude be? What should our approach be to the Lord God of heaven and earth? So how should you and I, how should we consider God? I'm sure we'd all agree that the world outside the church is far too lax an attitude towards God. Is that not right? That his name is either... um, It is either ignored or it is denied. That his gospel, it is either ridiculed or insulted. And and maybe you would argue that something similar happens inside much of the contemporary church. Would you say that? And we often hear a lot of people decrying the dumbing down of Christian praise. Don't we hear that? Uh, That Jesus has kind of been domesticated in much modern praise, people say, so that he's just spoken of or sung about as though he's somebody's best buddy or his best mate or uh, even worse, somebody's boyfriend. Well, it's very easy for us to moan about other people, isn't it? What about you and me? You see the question? What should we be thinking about when we think about the Lord God Almighty? How should we consider God? Well, this evening, as we continue in our sermon series, we come to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Now, this is a portion of scripture uh, that gives us, I think, two views of life. You have a secular view of life on one hand in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and you have a God-centered view on the other. Two views of life in front of you tonight. And as we listen to what is said to us by the Holy Spirit in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, what I think we will hear is the correct way, the proper way that mankind, you and I, should approach and think about our triune God. And I'll tell you what, just let me tell you how we're going to play things or how things might unfold this evening. Notice the word might amongst that. Uh, But we'll look first of all at the poem that we've got there. And then afterwards we'll consider the three points that are made subsequently by Solomon in the section after the poem. So do you see what I mean? There's almost four points to the sermon, if you like. There's the poem, and then there's the three subsequent things that Solomon says. That is the plan of action this evening. So would you please have it open in front of me? Would you turn to Ecclesiastes 3, page 670? And then let's consider the the first of those four things, and let's consider the poem. Okay, do you know Ecclesiastes chapter 3? Again, you're quite familiar with this uh, portion of scripture, or or, or not. Um, a recent search that I did of a lot of the sermons preached in a number of very large congregations, I searched their sermon archives, and it revealed to me that if pastors ever preach from Ecclesiastes, that they tend to preach from this section that we're in tonight, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. So, I'm thinking, maybe it is a familiar portion of scripture to you. Maybe you know this portion rather well, do you? Maybe. Well, whether you do or not, what is this portion of scripture about? 
Well, let me here just say one or two things about the poem, first of all. Ready for this revolutionary first thing I'll say about the poem? First thing I'll say is that it is a poem. That's it's, it's obvious, but it's true. Like, we are tonight entering into a new literary section of the book of Ecclesiastes. It was prose, a lot of what we've looked at. Now, now it's kind of changed into poetry. And, and, and maybe you say, but how do, you, how do we know that? Well, because this poem here, it bears a lot of the hallmarks of Hebrew poetry. Like, if you look at it, even if you glance at it, you see that there's repetition. Do you see that? Like, the central theme in the poem, that of time, it is repeated, I think it is, uh, 28 different occasions. So there's, there's repetition here. There's another hallmark. There's also parallelism. Because if you look at every line of the poem, look at verse 2, look at verse 3, you'll see that each line uh, there's, it's, it's parallel. Time is mentioned twice in each line. Do you see that? So you've got repetition, you've got parallelism. This is, this is Hebrew poetry that we're dealing with. This is new for us. It's Hebrew poetry. Second thing I'll say about the poem is that it is a poem about life. Look at verse 2. What do you see? It says, there's a time to be born and a time to die. Okay, so it's about life. And what happens from verse 3 onwards through the poem is that the author tries to speak about lots of the different things about life. You see it, like he speaks about the emotions of life and the activities of life and the events of life. This is a poem about human existence. So it's a poem, and it's a poem about life. The other thing that I want to say about this poem is that it is probably darker than we may at first realize. Because when Paul read that out, what were you thinking? Like if you look at it, the lilting back and forward in the poem, this ebbing and flowing and birth and death and planting and, 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 and uprooting. What were you thinking? Were you thinking, well, this is a beautiful poem. This is a very nice poem. This is a positive poem. Can I say to you, it's not. Let me think about this. A lot of the language in that poem would never have been heard in the Garden of Eden prior to the fall. You see what I mean by that, do you? Do you see what's mentioned here? There is weeping and there is mourning and there's death. And there is war. And there is hatred. You see? And then think about this. That so many of the good things that are said about life in this poem, they're very quickly cancelled out. There's a time to be born. What happens next? Time to die. Time to plant things. That's great. Now a time to uproot. You see, this is actually quite a a bleak poem that we're dealing with in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And if you remain unconvinced by that, then surely verse 9 confirms what I'm saying to you. Just look what Solomon does. He says, he portrays life and he shows all the events of life. And then what does he say? He says, and what is the point of it all? You see it? Like, what, what do we gain? What does the worker gain from all of this? Like, all of this? Do you see the point, friends? Do you see the point? This is a poem 
that portrays the apparent futility of our lives and human existence. So hopefully you're with me so far. We've looked at the poem and it's dark. The question that we must ask then as well is that it life is pointless. End of the story. And close the book. Thankfully that's not all that we're dealing with tonight. Listen to what I'm going to say. What we are given next in the next section here is a radically different view of human existence. Now, now listen to what I'm going to say. The next section of Scripture, what we are given, are the keys to understanding life. Now, that's a claim and a half, isn't it? You are given, in this next section of Scripture, the keys to understanding life, human existence. And what did I say? How many did I say there were? How many of these keys did I say there were? Look at the poem, there are three. Alright? So let's look at them. First of all, get this. We see here, and we are told that the sovereignty of God is the key to interpreting life. The sovereignty of God is the key to interpreting life. I spent most of the week trying to remember an expression, an English expression. <laughs> And only, I started thinking about it on maybe Tuesday, and I only got it on Friday. You know, in that horrible situation where there's a, a word on the tip of your tongue and you can't quite get it. That's what it was like with this, with this phrase. And then I remembered the phrase, and it was all a bit of an anticlimax. Uh, the, the phrase was, you, you cannot see the, oh, I've forgotten it. Oh, you can't see the wood for the trees. You know the expression, you've heard it before. You can't see the wood for the trees. That's what I was like with this portion of scripture. Um, My sermon preparation begins by me reading through and praying over a portion of scripture a number of times. And I read over this section of scripture, I don't know, maybe three or four times before I even saw the most obvious thing. About the portion of scripture. I, I do wonder, you can tell me later on, if you notice this most obvious thing, and it is the use of the name of God. Do you see it? Think about this. Nowhere in that whole poem is God's name mentioned. A poem about everything in life and nothing of God is mentioned. And then, wait, Next section, down to verse 15, from verse 9 to verse 15, there's hardly anything but God's name mentioned. You see it? Like, there's nothing of God in the poem. And then, I think it is, in the original, I think it's eight or maybe even nine times in just a few verses, it's just God's name is just thrown at us time and time and time again. Right? Now, what is it in that second section, do you think, that is emphasized. What is it about God that is, is said to us in that se- second section? Is it not this? Is it not his grand supremacy over human life? Just look with me. Look at verse 10. What's it about? What's said about life in verse 10? Life is a burden, yes, but God has laid it on men. Do you see his sovereignty coming through? 
Then look at verse 11. It's the same point as well. God has made everything beautiful in its time. And then if you look at verse 13. Life is a gift, yes, but who gives us this gift? Do you see it is sovereign, almighty God? Do you see the point here? Solomon in this next section, he said, no, 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 don't get this wrong. Life is not just futile. Like Solomon is saying to you, there is not just a time to be born and a time to die. What is he saying in that second section? He's saying that Almighty Sovereign God has set a time to be born. And he's set a time for you to die. And he's set a time for every other single detail that happens in your life in between those events. Do you see it? Like, do you know your confession of faith? Do you know your shorter catechism? What would the shorter catechism say about that? Like, if we had some of the kiddies in today that they would be able to answer that. Question seven of the catechism, what are the decrees of God? The decrees of God, they are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory, what has God done? Listen, he hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. So you see the point here. Like life, Solomon saying, it's not just this haphazard mixture of events. No, no, not a bit of it. God is in control. Now, that sort of picture we've got, this reality that Solomon's showing us here of this transcendent God standing supreme over the events of our lives. I think it's emphasized by by a phrase that you're going to know, I'm guessing. I think it's going to be familiar to most of you. It's the phrase in verse 11, at the end of verse 11. Most of you have heard this phrase, I think, haven't you? Solomon says that God has set eternity in the hearts of men. You know, if you've been brought up in a Christian home or something like that, you've probably heard that expression before. God has set eternity in the hearts of men. Do you see what it means? In distinction from the animal world, God has added into your heart, my heart, a curiosity. An acuity beyond the things, the immediate things, the things that are here and now. He set eternity into our hearts. But look at how the verse ends. Do you see it? That despite this curiosity, that such is God's majesty and his sovereignty that man cannot fathom all things, that we, you and I, cannot fully comprehend God. We cannot fully comprehend his plans. Now, I think it's one thing for us to understand what Solomon's saying here, that God is sovereign. It's another thing to apply this. Uh, So I would ask you to, to consider what I'm about to say. You and I as Christians... We need to keep coming back to this truth that Solomon's laying before us tonight. Isn't that true? That we need to keep coming back as Christians to the sovereignty of God in our lives. Because you know what it's like. There's so much temptation in your life to move away from the idea that God is supreme. Isn't that right? Like, think about this. Um, Somebody close to you dies or 
the blood test maybe comes back from the doctor and it comes back with some really bad news for you. Or the murmuring of redundancies at work. And what is your first thought very often? Even if you're a Christian, what's your your first thought? (gasps) Things are getting out of control. Isn't that right? Don't we think like that very often? We think, we look at these negative things that happen in our lives and and we think, oh, that's there's no point in that happening. That's a futile thing. It's just totally, why has that happened? Well, don't you see the the truth that we've got here in Ecclesiastes chapter 3? It's never like that. Like it's, it's never, ever like that. That God has set a perfect time in your life for that event to happen. If you want, like, think about it like a tapestry. Um, somebody else put it like this. Um, just now, you and I, we sit underneath the tapestry of life. Have you ever seen the underside of a tapestry before? Well, that's our view. We're looking up at the underside of the tapestry of life, and what do we see just now? What do you see? You see the knots and the mess. The threads hanging down. It just looks absolutely awful, doesn't it? What must we remember? God is a different view. And God is looking down tonight upon the tapestry of life. And he is looking upon this and he is seeing the absolutely beautiful picture that he is creating. And you and me, we need to keep coming back to that. We need to remember that life, your life, the events of your life just now are not weird, haphazard, random things. It's not like that at all. That God, your God is in control. What does Solomon say here? It is God who has made everything beautiful in its time. So the sovereignty of God is the key to interpreting life. Okay, another thing that we need to to notice here is that the sovereignty of God is the key to enjoying life. The key to enjoying life. Now hopefully you can see um, that Solomon's second great insight begins at the start of verse 12. At the start of verse 10, he says, I have seen... And it's the idea that he's had this insight. And then if you look at the start of verse 12, he says, and now I know something as well. So you've got a second insight. So what is it? Well, have a look at verse 12. He says, I know, I know that there is nothing better for men than to be happy and to do good while they live. Now, I hope you can see there's two things there. What's the first of them? That in light of God's sovereignty, we're called to be, you see what it is? We're called to be what? We're called to be, in light of God's sovereignty, we're called happy. We're called to be content. So what does that mean? Well, as a father, I am learning all the time just how dependent uh, just how dependent children can be. If you think about it like this, I would imagine that a lot of the dads uh, of LCPC have been in this situation. Just imagine a dad uh, is taking his little toddler along to their first ever birthday party. 
Okay, it's in a hall somewhere. It's not a party for them. It's for somebody or one of the other kids. And the dads, I'm sure some of the dads have maybe done this. They take their toddler along to this party. And imagine it from the kid's point of view. Okay, so the kid goes into this party. He's like, it's never seen anything like it before, you know. And it's just, there's this massive chaos as far as the kid's concerned. Just total confusion. There's older kids there and they're running around playing games. There's music, there's food. It's amazing. It's just, it's so confusing. But what's the truth? As long as that little toddler can look around and see their dad, everyone's cool, isn't it? As long as at every single stage, if when it's getting all a wee bit out of control, they can look around and they know that their dad's somewhere here and he's sticking around, things are fine for them. Isn't that right? You know that that's what it's like for kids. As long as dad's there, no worries. Uh, what about this? Switch the scenario. And dad... He takes his little toddler along to the first ever party in a hall somewhere. And what does he do? He leaves the child. He's got to go to B&Q because he's got to get a chisel or something like that. But he leaves the child in the party. Now, think about it from the kid's point of view. It's all this confusion and all of this chaos, isn't it? There's older kids, there's noise. But it's all without the reassuring presence of their dad, isn't it? So tell me, what's the kid going to do? Or I'll tell you what the kid's going to do. The kid's going to melt. Like The dad's gone. He's not about, and I can't see that familiar face, you see. And and the kid's going to, to be honest, the kid's going to freak out. Now, isn't that what Solomon's talking about here? Like, do you see what I mean by that? That though for the unbeliever in the poem, that there is no contentment, no joy in the uncertainties of life, what's different for you? What is different for me, the children of God? Don't you see it? We, like the kids in this story, you and I can actually embrace the uncertainty, and we can embrace the unpredictability of life. Why? That's right. Because we know that in these uncertainties, at all times, who is with us? Our Father. Our Father is with us in the uncertainties of life. And we know that through all of these unpredictabilities of life, He is not going to allow anything bad. Nothing, nothing, no spiritual harm to come to us. But then, so we're called to be content. But do you see the second element in verse 12? He tells us that we're to be happy, but we're also to do good. What does that mean? Well, I think uh, you probably would agree with me that when I say that I am sick of how... Christianity is portrayed in the media in this country today. Are you not, is it, is it not tiring? Like, you know what I mean, I'm sure. Let's say a sitcom appears on BBC ITV. But there's a Christian character in that. Then we know it's just so predictable, isn't it? We know what that Christian character is going to, he's going to be pathetic. And he's going to just be a do-gooder, isn't he? There's not going to be any mention of Jesus or anything like that. No, it's going to be this naive, bumbling fool who's just a 
uh, goody two-shoes, right? Isn't that what it's like? Now, that's not Christianity. Nor, though, is it what Solomon is calling for here. Now, yes, he says we are to do good. But listen to me when I say that the emphasis here is on you and I doing good before Almighty God. That is the focus. Now, I would ask you to give that due consideration today. What is Solomon? What is God saying to you tonight? In Scripture, he is saying that the necessary response to his sovereignty is service. That the greatest work that you and I can do this week is what is to live a godly life. To actually study the scriptures this week and obey. And to serve our neighbors, to serve our friends, to, to speak the truth of the gospel to the people that we know that there is actually nothing that you can do over the next seven days that can transcend those things in terms of importance. You see what Solomon's saying? I think it's a, it's a mighty thing that he's saying here. He's saying that God is sovereign. But what does God desire? He desires your happiness. But he also desires your holiness this week. So, the sovereignty of God that is the key to understanding or interpreting life. It's also the key, marvelously, to enjoying life. Um, but there is a, a last thing here. There's the sovereignty of God is also the key to fulfilling life. Now, you following what I'm saying, I hope that there are insights that Solomon is giving us. We've seen the first one. He says, I see in verse 10. Then he says in verse 12, I know. Then if you look at the beginning of verse 14, he does the same thing. He says, third insight, I know something else. So maybe you're as well looking at verse 14 and also keeping your finger on the verse. Because he tells us three things about the work of God. God's work, first of all, is fixed. Do you see what he says in verse 14? Everything God does will endure. It is lasting. It is permanent. It is fixed. Then we learn that God's work is finished. Same verse. He says, nothing can be added to what God has done. Nothing can be taken away. So it's fixed and it is finished. But then he also says that God's work is fair. It is fair. Verse 15. That God will call the past to account. That one day God, I promise you this. He is going to right all of the wrongs of this age. One day he is going to call all unpunished sinners to account that his work is fixed, it is finished, and it is fair. But Solomon ends this, what I think personally is a glorious section of Scripture with one further point. To get it, I want you to think about this, that what we are looking at here tonight, this section of Scripture is the whole of the book of Ecclesiastes in microcosm. You see what I mean by that? What's the message of Ecclesiastes? Well, we're given a view of secular life or a secular interpretation of life. Then we're given a God-centered view. 
And then my question to you is this, how does Ecclesiastes end? Do you know how Ecclesiastes ends? I'm giving the game away, I suppose. But Ecclesiastes ends with a call for all people everywhere to fear the living God. That's the message of this book. Do you see how what we've got in front of us is a is that message in microcosm? The poem is a secular view of life. Then an alternate view of life, and then look how it ends in verse 14. You've got your finger on it. So look, he says, Solomon, that God has done all this. What's all of this? It's your life. God has created your life. He's created the world that you inhabit. He's done all of these events in your life. He's done it all. And why? What's the bottom line, Luke? So that men will revere. Or better, so that men will fear. He's created your life. He's created my life. Everything so that men and women will fear him. And I want you to see that that answers the question, doesn't it? I wonder if you can think back to the question. What was the question? How do we approach God? What should our thinking be when we think about God? How do we consider God? Are we to be relaxed? Are we to be really informal about God? Is it to be casual before God? Wait a minute, what, what does he say here in his own word? We should fear the living God. And, 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 and friends, I want you to keep that truth for your own devotional life and your own worship life, your Christian walk. To think we are supposed to fear God. Remember tonight what you are. And I do not want to offend you by saying this, but I have to say it. What are you? But nothing. Like you and me, we are dust. And do you know why you're in this room this evening? You are in here to worship a transcendent and almighty king. And I say this to you tonight. We should be falling in faith-filled fear before God. I mean, we genuinely should be trembling before him. Consider who he is and his might. And he's created all things so that we fear him. Do you fear him? And I'll draw all to a conclusion like this. What are we saying here? We are saying that God is the God who sets everything in their perfect timing. Where do we see that most clearly? Is it not in the gospel? Is it not in the message of salvation? What do we read in Galatians 4? When the set time had fully come. God sent his son. Oh, wait a minute. Here's a test, Bible test trivia for you. What were the first words of Jesus' ministry in Mark's gospel? He enters the world. He begins his ministry and says, The time has come. And what does he say? Just before he goes to his death in prayer, he says, Father... The hour has come. Do you see it? Almighty sovereign God setting a perfect time for the work of salvation. 
And if you've never seen it before, I urge you to see tonight, if you're not a Christian, that the only way that you will have a relationship with this sovereign and perfect God is through that work of Jesus Christ. Because he's done, let me be blunt, what you are simply unable to do. That the Lord Christ has lived a representative life. You cannot do this because of your sin. That he has died a death where he has borne the sins of many in his body on the tree. In fact, do you see? Yes, do you see what Christ has done? He has done a fixed and a finished and a fair work for you. It is only in Christ you will understand this God. And it is only in Christ you will understand this life. Friends, hear me. I say to you, God is sovereign over your life. But you should praise him if you're a Christian tonight because he is a God of grace. And what does that mean you know this evening? What do we have to remind ourselves of time and time and time again? Remind yourself of this tonight. That in all things. God works, that's true. But what else is true? He works for the good of those who love him. He works for our good. Let's pray.